Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. Zero Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Not for nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. How long does it take you before you steal a french fry off of their plate? It sounds harsh, but I mean, there's nothing quite like dinner with a side of your friend's dinner. You wear less clothes and you, you let the bird out of the cage, so to speak. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another week of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim. And I'm Evan. We've got a soaring episode for you today. Our new friend, Michael Bird Schaefer, is on the show. He goes by Bird, and you will learn very quick as to why that is. Uh, there could not be a more appropriate name for this guy. He is a pro skier with Black Crow Skis uh, that I was connected to through through a mutual friend. And Black Crows has been putting out some some skis that, as somebody that spends a lot of time at ski resorts, I'm seeing their stuff more and more and more this season than ever before. Uh, Michael Bird has a lot of crazy stories about skiing, particularly in Chamonix. He has made me incredibly jealous because that's somewhere where I really want to go. Uh, and he's going to share some stories. He's going to share what is the behind the scenes of being a pro skier. And uh, all in all, pretty interesting guy to talk to. Yeah, Bird is quite a character. And as someone who's never skied in his life and only snowboarded once, in what was an absolutely embarrassing display. I'm always wary of talking to people who are really big skiers, especially a pro skier like Bird, because I'm afraid I won't be able to keep up or won't really vibe with what they're saying. But this guy is just hilarious, super interesting, great stories, and his Bird persona, which he's really made into a brand for himself, makes him incredibly unique. It does, it does. And it's funny because he explains in the interview how important it is for a pro skier to build a brand around themselves. And I'm not sure I've ever seen a skier build a better brand for themselves than Bird. Yeah, Tim, what would your brand be if you were going to go pro and had to kind of brand yourself, take on a persona, almost like a WWE type persona, but you're a snowboarder. What What's your uh, what's your nickname? What's your go-to? My nickname is Slick T. Slick T, you came up with that way too fast. <laughs> well, it was thought of... Maybe by me when I was in college. Uh, Has that caught on? Has that gone? <laughs> you know, I tried to push it for a while and no one, it, it's it's like a running joke more than anything. So you're the guy that's like, comes up with a nickname for himself. And then every time he hangs out with his friends, he's like, it goes to the slopes. You're like, guys, like, can you uh, like remember to call me Slick T this time? Like, remember, it's, it's not Tim. It's not Tim. It's Slick T. Hashtag Slick T. Get it going. That's my persona. How does Slick T act or how is he different than Tim Winger? Slick T is a smooth operator that says the right thing <laughs> and kind of just moves seamlessly between social interactions and parties. And what is Tim Winger, by contrast? Tim Winger is somebody who, was in when he was in his 20s, wanted to be <laughs> Slick T. Okay, well, T Tim Winger is fast on his way to becoming Slick T, not least of which because he just got his first dose of the COVID vaccine, which is pretty exciting. I did. I did. I've got one dose of the Moderna vaccine in my left arm right now. I got it two days ago. I go for uh, dose number two in about a month. And I got to say, 
First of all, the reason I'm eligible is because I volunteer at the food bank. I didn't cut any lines or travel across state boundaries to make this happen. It was totally legal. Humble brag, but go on. Yeah, definitely a humble, a humble brag. The experience was so easy. Uh, and that could be because I don't live in a major metropolitan area. But literally, I was in the office for probably about 18 minutes. And 15 of those 18 minutes were the 15 minutes that they make you wait after you get the shot to make sure you don't have a reaction before they let you leave. It was, I was in and out. So for any listeners who might be curious or uh, hesitant about the vaccine, it's been a few days now for you and you haven't had any serious mutations. No limbs have fallen off. Um, you haven't experienced any behavioral changes like suddenly feeling the urge to drink Bud Lights, get an office job. Uh, wear a Red Sox hat? Nothing like that? No, nothing like that. I, I had a sore arm for probably about 24 hours, and I had a pounding headache that night that I took a couple ibuprofens for. But other than that, nothing really. I went to the gym today. It was fine. Planning to go snowboarding tomorrow. So yeah, it's been pretty smooth. So no blackout dates is on its way to being immune. Yeah. This is one small step for Tim. One giant leap for no blackout dates. Yeah, we're 25% of the way to being fully vaccinated. Now. Yeah, true, true. Well, speaking of one giant leap, we're going to get into it with the man himself, the bird. We'll see you on the other side. All right. Well, we are here with Michael Schaefer, commonly known as Bird in the skiing world. Michael is a skier with Black Crows, and I imagine you have a, a series of companies and sponsors that you've worked with over the years. Uh, and the first thing I want to know is because you have to, you have kind of built this personality around your nickname. How did you come to be known as Bird? That question goes deep, and I'll try to give you the the, the full wingspan version here. Um, yeah, I'd like to say because it's my, it's from my it's my skiing prowess, and I fly down the mountain like a bird. But I think it's it's probably because I fly more in my mind like a bird, and I'm often I'm often dreaming and. Um, and seeing things way out there and visualizing stuff. And so I'm, I'm kind of uh, flying in my mind a lot. And so I think that's where it started. But really the, the, the bird thing started way back in the day when we were doing free ride comps. If you skied something, you did something that was just amazing and it blew the crowd's mind. And it also, um, all the competitors were just like, wow, did you see what they just pulled off? That got the sick bird award. And um, from there you'd get up, yeah. And you'd end up being nominated for the sick bird. And then by the end of the comp, it was unanimous, whoever won this, and you got a belt buckle and you became sick bird. And I, I just took this, this feeling of bird and my friends being uh, competitive and being sponsored. And I wasn't one that went that route. I didn't want the sponsorships to take away from how I felt about skiing. It was too much pressure. Uh, for me to uh, uh, didn't want it to take away what the mountain was giving me. And so I made my own sponsor and I put duct tape over my labels and I, I said bird. And um, some people thought I named myself bird and gave myself a nickname, but that wasn't the idea at all. It was, it was that freedom that this, this bird word said, you know, and I noticed from just covering my labels and saying bird on there, what people kind of started dreaming about when they read the word bird, it usually brought a smile to somebody's face and kind of made things more relaxed. Cause it's, first of all, who's this wing nut that's 
you know, covering up his labels and writing bird on there. But second of all, it just, I just realized that this bird is, a, is it's a real word for freedom and, and doing things your own way. Fortunately, or sometimes unfortunately, can be a burden. Nailed it. You like that pun? There you go. There's a lot of uh, birdisms that come with this, but we're we're gonna get in, into those, I am sure. I get to carry that name and then represent a little bit of the freedom that 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 bird symbolizes. So you did not legally change your name to Bird. No, and somehow it's my middle name. I I, I wanted to keep my middle name because it was Anthony. You know, Michael Anthony sounded like kind of a movie star, kind of rock and roll name. Yeah, maybe a porn star. Oh yeah. Um, well. There is some porn out there, and I'm talking about pal corn. And right now, in the in the north in the North Cascades, we get a little bit of pal on top of corn, and when it's carvable corn underneath, and you get that North Cascades pal on top, we call that porn. And right now, it's middle late March. It turns into about triple X porn. It's porn season. It's, it's I've been saying this for for months, Tim. It's porn season. Come on. It's porn season. Yeah, you go. I I never knew what you were talking about, but I get it now. You wear less clothes and you freaking, uh, you know, you let it go. You let, you let things, you let the bird out of the cage, so to speak. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so the bird thing is more of a, it's a state of mind thing for you more so than a physical ski mantra. It comes from your personal outlook and your personal perspective rather than um, like a, any kind of skiing uh, gimmick that's born out of a sponsorship. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely more of my philosophy that I've learned and built off uh, experience and be and my friends and being in the mountains. You know, it's that freedom that that really what the mountains give us. And um, and yeah, it's become a bit of a philosophy with a little bit of caca. And the caca is not just the shit. You know, it's the caca. The caca zone can be out there in the mountains. But it also can be really in the mind. And really, we want to find that caca zone inside as well as out. So That's K-A-W-K-A-W yeah. for anyone who wants to consult the uh, official Encyclopedia Britannica definition. So what exactly is the caca zone? Define the caca zone a little bit deeper for us. The caca zone is, um, you know, I've tagged a line called the full wingspan. But when you get into the caca zone, not not just in your mind, but out there, it's that moment where the dream becomes awake, where you're not trying too hard. You know, sometimes you're, it, it could be seem like the perfect day and you can be flapping real hard and just not quite getting that relaxed, soaring feeling where you can just let go and kind of dream a little bit. And then there's other days where it's just perfect and everything aligns, even if it's bumpy out. But if it's that pout where you're where you can actually dream awake and everything goes into that flow state that's the caca zone if you can find that in your mind in the airport you know when you're late for a plane and just go there that takes practice but i'm able to um you know through certain techniques i'm able to get to the caca zone sometimes in my mind when it's the most stressful so that's the goal have you trademarked this this caca zone thing because i feel like it's a great concept we got we got something there, you know, and I um, I'm usually leaving uh, the business side of things last, but um, you're making me think about it now. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, you have this whole brand going. You gotta. Do you, do you know who could be my manager? Tim. <laughs> uh, preferably female, uh, around mid thirties, uh, strong, directed, 
and um, can rein the bird in when he's uh, letting it out of the cage too much. I was I was gonna suggest I was gonna suggest Evan, but he's not a mid thirties female. I, I don't fit any of those descriptions. So, but you do cross dress sometimes. I heard. <laughs> Uh, only in porn season. Only in porn season. <laughs> oh, yeah. in porn season you can. You put the sarong around, and sometimes you can make it a cape. It's good. <laughs> so I, I think when when people think of 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 quote unquote pro skier, they see you know the video clips and the competitions, and of course that's you know maybe the facade of it. But what else goes into being someone that skis for a living that people don't see? So much of it is relationships, you know, um, for me, I never saw myself as, as being a professional skier, you know, receiving money directly for skiing. I, I saw, um, I saw connections with people in the mountains. And fortunately for me that those connections have developed into, uh, lifelong relationships that are now my sponsors that, um and partners that help me get by uh, and i say get by because most of us that are skiing for a living aren't making a bunch of money but we're living a lifestyle that is um where you want to be there's a lot that goes into um you know when you finally see that final clip or segment in the film and everything just looks perfect there's been a lot of things that go behind it before it actually happens, you know? So my hat's off to people that have make it of, you know, that have made it their full-time career right when they got out of high school, you know, and that are still going because that's not an easy task. I, I kind of took a roundabout way and I think it saved my, personally, it saved for me, um, uh, my passion for being outside and being on skis. Whereas some guys, you know, it's a, it's a job and if things aren't right, that it's disappointing. And so you're not right out of high school. Oh, well, you know, I I'll always be 28 with the goggles, <laughs> especially the bigger the goggles get, the, the more I'm, I can stay that age. Can you see yourself getting burnt out on skiing at some point soon? Or do you think it's something you'll be doing for as long as you possibly can. Um, I mean, the whole, that's the whole lifestyle and the grind and everything. Um, the lifestyle, hopefully, uh, I think as it changes, as, as I get older and, and find my place and feel comfortable with what I'm putting out there, if it's still bringing me fulfillment inside and, and, and there's still kids out there that I can help bring up, um, especially the younger ones in, in high school, I've been doing some junior uh, free ride camps and stuff. And you can see what happens when they find the Kaka zone in their mind. Um, it's life changing for them and it gives them a direction. And if I can be a part of that, then I can't see that changing. It, you know, the shape might change a little bit and what it looks like, but I hopefully will always enjoy what I'm doing and, and skiing. Right. So what, what is a typical night look like when you're out on the road is it kind of is it the crazy kind of party vibe you see in ski films or is you keep it more low-key is a lot more serious prepping god i think it just depends on the situation you know when i was shooting for warren miller and we're you're in a place where you don't know anybody and the days are intense for shooting and let's say you have 13 days uh solid and one of the edits or the films i did was line of descent and we were in Montana and it's springtime, you know, late spring. We were up at Beartooth Pass and uh, 
you have all this time and those guys that are shooting, I tell you what, they work their asses off. And when you have that much daylight, those are long days. By the time you're done for that day, you're ready to just hit it and go to bed and get up and do it again and give it your best shot. You know, you want to, you want to ski your best. And then let's say we're in Chamonix and, um, and all bets are off because it's more powerful than us and freaking you're going with whatever's happening at the moment. And you, you might just end up down fucking in the basement somewhere. Um, there's some stripper pole and you're wondering who these weird people are. And you just close your eyes and go back into the, the trance music. Yeah. You go into the caca zone cause it's too weird outside. <laughs> um, it just, it all depends. You know, it's, um, I think drinking alcohol and, and partying has always been synonymous with skiing. And, and, and some of us are taking a little bit of look at that because it's not, it's, you know, being able to be the one who skis the hardest on the hill and then can party all night and do that day after day, you know, although that's admirable, it's not, um, it's not always, uh, the healthiest uh, approach. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. It's one one thing that's been a continuous theme, I think, over the last couple months on the show is that like sometimes these things that you think are awesome when you're 24, when you're 44, they're not quite as awesome. You start to view them a little bit differently, maybe. Especially if it's the day after and you can't find your ski sock and you got to come back into the house or the hotel or wherever you're staying to get your shit together three times and you're hoping nobody's watching you and you wonder if you're talking out loud to yourself yeah you gotta like rain it you gotta rein it in a little bit if you're gonna stay with it so um i think i think we can have nearly as much fun of course it's nice to let go and just let let it all go every now and then but day after day just partying and skiing will it'll It'll take you down. <laughs> What's one of your favorite places to go, whether for uh, a sponsored trip that you're working on a film or just recreationally skiing? What's one of your favorite places that you skied? Not mountain ski-wise, but the the area, the people, the culture. Whoa. Um, I would have to say, even though it's like my second home, I would have to say uh, Chamonix, France. It's... Uh, it's so eclectic and there's so uh there's just so many different types of people from all different backgrounds from all different co countries in the same place and they're usually in springtime we're all enjoying the mountains in a similar way and when you come down and you're sitting on the corner over there um we call it the bromuda triangle or the triangle um, when you're sitting there and you're just looking at what's going on, not just the outfits and the personas and the people and, uh, you know, the music and the thing, there's so much happening that, um, and people are just generally interested in where the heck does this guy come from? You know, what's going on with you? And it's been a place that's connected me with the rest of the world. Uh, like you could be riding up the chairlift and be with, a doctor from Sweden, or it could be a car carpenter from, you know, uh, Czechoslovakia, but we're all there for the same reasons. And that might just lead you to a whole nother place all of a sudden. That's how I got to Norway and ended up, you know, being sponsored with this company called Nerona because I was on the right chair with the right guys that 
accepted me and wanted to go for a ski run. And all of a sudden, boom, I'm going to Norway. Yeah, Chamonix is on it's on the top of my list of places I want to go. I've, I've no, I haven't made it there, but uh, one of these days. Any uh, trash talk for snowboarders or is it all love? Um, for the most part, I still call them knuckle draggers. You know, I um, I like to give them a little bit of shit on traverses because they 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 have their own struggles, but you know, so do skiers. Sometimes they're just too white and uptight as skiers, I think. And you know, if it wasn't for the snowboard and the monoboarders, you know, you got to give a shout out for the monoboarders because in France they did a lot in the 80s and early 90s before snowboarding became a thing. The monoboarders were going the fastest, and they were punk rock. And if you look up some of the stuff that the guys in Chamonix were doing on mono boards, it's actually insane. It's insane how fast they were going. Plus, I think they were, you know, dropping into the disco biscuits or the, you know, the special hallucinogens. And they had like tiger face paint and and lycra suits and all kinds of stuff going on. So mono board did a lot for both skiing and snowboarding, I think. That sounds like you, Tim, if you were in the boarding in the 80s. Yeah, if I were a little older. There was this persona that, or judgment that snowboarders were not mountain savvy. They didn't come from an alpine mountain background, so they didn't really deserve to be there. And that's just ludicrous, man. It's a, That's just a crazy way, old, archaic way of thinking. It's fear-based, and dude, we're done with that shit. Since you uh, spend a lot of time in France, how do how is the ski scene, like ski resorts, ski towns in France, compared to those in the U.S. as far as the people go? As far as the people go, I feel like there's a bit more, there's more of a difference of um, culture. So it makes it interesting. It seems like people are more open to to fire up a conversation because you're different than them and they want to know where you're from, or they can usually read, you know, they can usually read us as Americans pretty well. I don't really claim Canadian, even though I live on the Canadian border, but you know, with our old administration and stuff, it was a little bit, it's a little bit tricky to not take, feel like you're to blame for some of the, some of the problems out there. But for the most part, I think, that's probably the biggest. It's just it's just so interesting to be with different folks from around the world, and you kind of want to know what's going on. You know, we're out there to ski for and and slide on snow for freedom, and and generally we we find that no matter where we are in the world, we all have that in common. So not really being able to travel as freely during COVID, uh, or fly the coop, as you might say in bird speak, how has that affected? You're skiing. Have you been exploring your own backyard mountains more? That experience and just that appreciation has been growing. And so now I'm like, oh, I feel more involved. I see what's really happening in my own community, in my own mountains. Um, I'm having closer relationships in some ways with people that are here because we don't get to hug necessarily and see each other every day. But our conversations are usually a little bit longer and stuff really matters. Like, I think it, it has given us an appreciation for what we do have. Um, and, and the other stuff's more of an escape. You know, I want to get the, the flock out of here to use another birdism. You like that one? I'm a, I'm a big birdism guy now. I'm going to, I'm going to try and speak only in birdisms. If you can give me like a, like a f- complete list of all of them at the end of the interview. You'll be like, cut this and flock that and 
that's birdful and what the bird and then in our, our next segment we're just gonna speak in birdisms no actual words just birdisms yeah if you have a glossary we'll link to it okay well uh that's a good way to to close that out and we're gonna move now into into a section which is our listener question we have uh kind of a series of questions that people send us to discuss on the show about a variety of topics but we have one that i think is pretty appropriate for you uh this question kind of ties into to, to ski travel. And the question is, if you're actually looking for a good mountain experience, do you need to look beyond the resort towns or can you still find everything you need in a resort town? And I think what they're referring to is, can you go to a Vale and still have the same like outdoorsy mountain experience as you could if you went to like Silverton or something like that? Personally for me, no. I, I don't think so, um, because uh, it, I think the more you get, the more people you get, the more directed people need to be. So the more management there is and it that feeling is there. But it depends on where you come from. Right. If you came from downtown, uh, I don't know, Boston or something, and you get to go to some place in Killington and and you get to slide on snow on skis, you're probably going to feel like this is the ultimate. It's going to be wicked hardcore. As a guy who's from Boston, you nailed my accent yeah, perfectly. Yeah, that's how Evan feels all the time. <laughs> Are you from Boston? Yeah, well, uh, just north of Boston. You got to drag your weary caucus to the bar and get a beer, man. Yeah, we got to go to the fucking uh, Sox game, kid. Fucking uh, get me some $27 beers. The Red Sox. Fucking, you got to put a lot of fuck in there, too. Yeah. Um, but then if you're someone that has experience and you're used to solitude in the mountains, right? Uh, and more so. Uh, and you're looking for that peace. When you get to a place that's, uh, that is very developed, um, sometimes it's hard to feel that out there on the mountain, you know? Um, and you'd rather be at a smaller, maybe a little ski town where you can ski tour from and and find that solitude it just is so dependent because just using chamonix again as another example it's you know it's a city basically in the mountains but when you get up there and you're alone in the mountains there you're you're feeling a high-powered mountain experience all right man well michael schaefer michael bird schaefer thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate you taking the time uh where where can people go to uh to give a flock about you Oh, you can go to birdware.com if you want to see what I'm doing online there, uh, you know, as far as the material and stuff I go, I do. Um, but say hi on Instagram. Go to birdware and say, say hello. Sure. Thank you so much for coming on, man, and uh, stay in touch. Ka-ka, Evan, Tim. Cheers, man. Ka-ka. All right, here we are at another hot take section after a very ka-ka interview. Uh, we're going to put Evan on the hot seat first today. The first question leading right out of the end of the interview into this one. If skiers are the bros of Colorado and surfers are the bros of California, which demographic is the bro of Boston? Whew. Right out of the Kaka zone and into hot takes. Okay. Good one. Uh, people who work in finance. Okay. I kind of have expected you to say that. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the same would be true of like New York too, but yeah, like 25 year old dudes that, uh, 
work in finance and dress like their accountants when they go to the bar or on a very uh, similar but kind of like opposite aesthetic red Sox, bruins celtics fans like overgrown beards um jersey like they look like they basically just rolled off the couch and into the bar and they're in these like oversized jerseys and they're usually pretending like they're not looking at the group of girls to their left and pretending that they're watching the game and they're just in these giant groups screaming at the tv so that's the two kinds of bro you find in boston it's finance bro looks like an accountant looks like he was ready to balance the checkbook of every girl at the bar and Celtics fan that begrudgingly got off his couch and is pretending not to care about anything except the game, but his head's really on a swivel, so watch out for him. Okay, and how many Dropkick Murphys songs do these people sing on a daily basis? One, and that, uh, not even one, uh, a quarter of one. Just the just shipping up to Boston. Shipping up to Boston, whoa, shipping up to Boston, whoa, over and over and over and over again. If you ask these people to name one more lyric to that song, gun to their head, they couldn't do it. You couldn't tell. I absolutely despise that song. I know a lot of their music, and I've seen them many, many times. It's not one of my favorite Dropkick Murphy songs. Okay, next question. Let's say you're at a restaurant. You're with somebody that you know pretty well. The food is at the table. That person gets up and goes to the restroom. How long does it take you before you steal a French fry off of their plate? The second they turn their back. Okay, that's kind of what I figured. If it's just a friend and not a date... I don't even wait for them to go to the bathroom. I just take a roll or take a uh, take a fry. It's it you know sometimes friendship isn't worth as much as an extra fry. It sounds harsh, but I mean there's nothing quite like dinner with a side of your friend's dinner. Uh, yeah, I agree. Like I I do the same thing. If it's somebody I know really well, I'll just kind of grab a fry or whatever. You'll get pissed if someone takes your fry though. Uh, I might not. Yeah, I might not say anything the first time but i'll definitely be like god damn it don't take my fries but then if they take another one then i might say something yeah i'd like i'd reach for someone else's fries without even thinking about it and then if they get like pissed off i'd be like geez lighten up just a fry but then if they reach for mine i'd be silently like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, about that. do you ever do the thing where it's like it's okay we can order more no i do the like the eyes are bigger than my stomach thing where if you sit if you're like mildly hungry I'm like, all right, let's do a smorgasbord of apps. Obviously, we each get our own entree as well, but let's do nachos, let's do mod sticks, let's do quesadillas. I'm just terrified of not having enough food. Yeah, well, my my last question for you is kind of a furtherance of this. You're you're looking at the menu, figuring out what you're going to get. You're stuck between two things, but you finally decide to go with one. Do you then try to like persuade one of the other people at the table to order the other thing you wanted so that you can have some of it? Yes, I'm a big halvesies guy. Yeah, I I do that too. It's like, yeah, well, I'll get this and you get that, and we can. But the other then the other person has to be interested not only in that dish but in in my dish too. So it's a it's a tough sell sometimes. But this brings up an interesting point, which is a restaurant indecision, for which I found I think a pretty good remedy. And I may have told you about this already, but it's this restaurant idea that I had called I'll have what they're having. So it's a new restaurant and you get there totally, totally eliminates indecisiveness. You sit down, you have a menu, whatever you order on the menu goes to someone else in the restaurant and whatever someone else in the restaurant orders comes to you. 
So you have no say over what you get. It's totally random, total grab bag. You can have, uh, you can have an allergy list so you can check off like, oh, I'm allergic to these things. Don't give me anything with any dishes with these things in them. Um, and you get one veto. So if you get, if the waiter brings you something that's random and you don't like it, you can veto it, send it back or st- they'll bring it to someone else and then they'll bring you another dish and that's the one you're stuck with. But it's, it's because I always have this sense that like, I'm so indecisive, especially at a, a restaurant like Cheesecake Factory that has like hundreds of items. Yeah. Like a 15 page menu. It's like a yeah, novel. Yeah. Right. So it's like, and then I order something and then I see the waiter bringing food to another table next to me. And I'm like, oh, that looks so good. I wish I'd gotten that. I'm always like, oh, I should have gotten that. So this eliminates all indecision. No more regrets. No more what ifs. Call it. I'll have what they're having. So I've gotten almost I've gotten almost universal hate on this idea, but I kind of like it. I mean, the thing is, it's like I I don't dislike the idea, but it's like, what do you do with when there's a vegetarian? So the menu would have different columns for uh, like chicken, red meat, fish, vegetarian, and you can check off which columns from which you want your food or definitely don't want your food. Ah, okay. So you didn't say that before. You didn't say it that. It kind of falls into the 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 um the allergy thing. So basically it's like don't br- they basically would say do not bring me any meat and then they would pretty much just get a salad. So that's fine. And I think it would be huge on like in like San Francisco and like some hipster coastal towns, you know. I don't think it would catch on. I don't think it would ca- wouldn't catch on in like Kansas, but no, only hipster towns. It has to be in like a hipster big city, like, you know. Big time novelty. Not very practical. All right. I got a few good door slammers for you. So question one, is spring as a season a hoax? Does spring really exist? I think I think spring is, is not a hoax when you're in a place that gets the season changes because you can see the green coming out. Like right now I'm looking out my window. Everything is not green. Everything is still in winter mode. There's no leaves on the trees, you know, but in like a month, everything's going to be bright green and it's going to be really nice. But if you're in somewhere like Southern California or like Florida that doesn't have season changes like to that extreme. Yeah. Spring is bullshit. Yeah. So my argument is, and I'm coming from a place that has even more dramatic seasons than Colorado, New England. I do think spring is a hoax. And I've always said this because I think spring is more of a state of mind than an actual tangible identifiable season because think about the other seasons, right? You have winter that has a very, very unique aesthetic. You have summer that has like a million holidays and it's, it also has its own, it's, it's hot. It's, it's pool season. It's beach season. It's like summer vacation, all these things. Um, fall, especially in new England, Halloween, Thanksgiving, um, the leaves, the colors, going up to Maine, all these things. What is spring? Spring is March, April, and May. It looks aesthetically almost identical to summer. I don't think, my argument is that it's not unique and distinct enough to warrant its own season. I think it's mini summer. It's summer's temperamental little brother. That's what it is. And I say it's a state of mind because the first weekend in March or April, that's like really nice. Everyone's like declares winter dead, whips out the shorts, goes to the pool, goes to the beach, 
they're like, oh, it's a short winter this year, folks. We're done. We're done. It's summer. And then guess what happens? Snow is three days later. And it's just cold and shitty until like the end of May. Well, I've all, yeah, I've always viewed spring as like a transition season. You know, it's just like a couple of months there where it's not really fitting into any other category. Right. But it's the only transition season, isn't it? Because fall is also a short season, but it has an incredibly unique aesthetic. It has Halloween and Thanksgiving. It has activities like apple picking and even its own drinks like apple cider and pumpkin spice lattes, um, its own desserts. If fall was a character in a play, if fall, winter, or summer were characters in a play, you'd care about them. If spring was a character, it would be like the super untalented kid who gets to play the rock in the background on the stage because he's not good enough for an actual speaking part. That's spring. I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I think there's a lot of people that probably do. Oh, there's a ton of people that disagree. This is a wildly wildly unpopular opinion i will say that i think spring is overrated in that sense like the weather is super unpredictable it's a tease because it's nice and then it snows and the allergies are terrible i don't know so i think spring to me is like a is like a guy that comes up behind you taps you on the shoulder one weekend you look you look back and then he's gone like that's that's that one weekend that is nice and you're like get all pumped and you're like oh it's here and then you look and it's not here it's gone. And that doesn't show up until June 1st. Would love to hear other people's takes because I know it's probably not a popular one. Um, flower blooms are a spring, are a distinctly spring thing. That's the thing that most people hit back with that, oh, the, the flowers are in bloom. Eh, eh, that's a weak, it's a weak argument to me. And yeah, I mean, I think the thing with the thing about spring is it's like, you look forward to it. You look forward to it. People only ever talk about the good things and the beautiful things. But the thing is that like 80% of it is dealing with unpredictable weather and, and crap like allergies, right? It's like, it's not like fall where fall is like, you pretty much know what to expect in the fall. You know, it's pretty much always the same spring keeps going back and forth. Is it summer? Is it winter? Is it summer? Is it winter? You don't know, but people only focus on the summer part. You know, they, they, they overlook the winter part. Exactly. All right. I, I'm going to, I'm going to chalk that up as you agreeing with me on this whole thing. All right. Next question. Does money buy happiness? Money buys happiness when you're, when you're making between 75,000 and $95,000 a year. That's what I've heard. When you look up happiness in the dictionary, does it say when you're making between 75 and $95,000? <laughs> Having enough money that you're comfortable can buy happiness. But I don't think that having a ton of money and pursuing money as like your passion is anywhere near happiness. There's a gray area for sure. I think when people repeat the money doesn't buy happiness cliche, it's really out of touch, honestly, because probably 95% of humanity's problems stem either directly or indirectly from money. And I mean, do I think getting a raise from 200000 to $300,000 a year will make you exponentially happier? No, I don't. But I mean, money buys freedom. It buys flexibility. It buys education. Uh, money doesn't buy love, but it buys access to relationships. It buys access to social situations. People that say that money doesn't buy happiness probably don't have any money. Or in more cases, I think the people who say this have always had money and never knew what it was like to live without it. And that's why it strikes me as tone deaf. Like try telling the parents of a family of four scraping by on food stamps that money doesn't buy happiness. Anyway, 
Money buys happiness. That's the official no black update stance. Moving on. Our library is bullshit. Uh, I, I like books and not, without having to buy them. So that's kind of cool. Um, I'm going to leave this with a story. Okay. So I, I forget what podcast I was listening to. I think it was This American Life a while ago. I was listening to an episode where an old man called a library to ask like a really, what would have been a really simple question if he would have Googled it but he didn't know how to use Google or didn't want to use the internet. So he called the library and then the person at the library is like, can't figure it out. Like it, it, it made the situation so much more complicated because the man was using an outdated method to try to obtain information. Okay. Yeah. I was curious what, what direction you would go with this because the reason I ask is if you write a book and that book is published, is it fair that people can just go to a library, check that book out for free for all eternity, never pay a dime to read that book and consume your material without ever paying you for it. Well, I've always wondered, since I was a kid, I've wondered about that. Doesn't that each scan of that library book kind of trigger some kind of a record that the publishing company would get a little bit of money for or something? But how would they get money for it? Because the book was never purchased by anybody. Might as well put out one book that they, they just people just recycle over and over again. So I don't know how, how, how this works. I'm sure it's... It doesn't seem like a very controversial issue, so I'm sure it works out in some way. But I've always wondered, like, if I'm an author and I publish a book and people are checking out of the library, I'm not making any money off of that. So how is that okay? It's like libraries are the Napster of literature. They are. Uh, it, it's it's interesting. I've all, Since I was a kid, I've wondered that. Like, there's got to be some value to the publishing companies by having their books in libraries. I imagine that there is. I just don't know. I think what this means, Eben, is that we need to get a librarian on here. I was actually just thinking about that. And on the face of it, that would sound like the most boring guest of all time. But all right, we're going to do a first half. We're going to do a half hour on the Dewey Decibel system before we get into anything else. <laughs> all right. Well, that's going to do it for another episode of No Blackout Dates. Be sure to head over to Apple. Leave us a review. Let us know what you think about spring. Is it bullshit? Is it overhyped? Or uh, is it worth it? We want to know. Also, if you have any questions you want us to talk about on air or ask a future guest, shoot us an email, noblackoutdatespod at gmail.com. We'll see you next week.